Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Godfrey Bloom, who has quite the lengthy bio. He is a financial economist, a specialist in geopolitical military strategy, has served as a member of the European Parliament, and he is an author and YouTuber. Good afternoon, Mr. Bloom. How are you enjoying the new abnormal in Airstrip One? Uh, well, I, it's uh, really nice to be here. Uh, very nice to be talking to you about some of the problems that we've got uh, today. Uh, it seems all over the world. Uh, indeed. And in a recent video, you said that we have so many extraordinary phenomenon at the moment that it's difficult to know where to start, that the world is going through a bout of insanity not seen since 1914. And I think I and I'm sure many listeners feel the same. And some of the themes I wanted to get your thoughts on include geopolitics, the, the, ground, the crown virus agenda, the climate agenda and the economy. But I thought perhaps we could start with your global bird's eye view on what you see as the kind of key geopolitical developments or, or trends that are most important for you. Uh, we see lately, you know, the US, NATO, EU arming Ukraine and pushing for them to start a war with Russia and Donbass, the current Poland, Belarus migrant situation, the calls for war with China by the Anglo-American establishment. Now, could you just give us your uh, pulse on geopolitics as you see it today? Well, I... Uh... I made the point, as you very kindly pointed out, that I don't think we've seen the world as mad as this since 1914. Uh, and I use that uh, analogy quite carefully because it is uh, it is actually a period of time that I've devoted a, uh, a lot of expertise to and a lot of research to. Uh, and uh, I've spoken at some length at universities on where we went wrong in 1914 and how it could have been avoided. But what, of course, we had, the problem we had uh, was uh, empires, the clash of great empires, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, the militarism from Prussia uh, that we see and that has been around since uh, the uh, Franco-Prussian War. Uh, and we saw that uh, developing into 1914 and beyond. It was a Prussian-led, okay, it was a federal Germany in name, but it was Prussian-led. Uh, and I've made the observation that we sadly, I'm a great lover of America and the American Constitution, we see a militaristic state now, uh, which is reminiscent of Prussia uh, in the 1870s and 80s, right up to 1914. Uh, it's a uh, is, I think, deeply dangerous. And we've also seen, have we not, uh, I believe, a link between all these major global scare stories, uh, because if you want to control uh, ordinary people, you must first instill fear. So we've had the COVID scamdemic, is what we call it over here, the scamdemic, we've had that, uh, which is been extremely successful in stilling fear into ordinary people uh, with very clever people in government, behavioral scientists, so on and so forth, not just in England, but uh, uh, elsewhere. Uh, and we've managed to frighten people. We're now trying to terrify people with climate change. Another total and utter absurdity, uh, the hypothesis that man-made carbon dioxide is somehow going to boil the planet. Uh, a hypothesis so ludicrous uh, it's almost unbelievable, but I mean, sadly, yet again, believed by a number of people or apparently believed by a number of people. And we also have, do we not, the pending crisis in uh, international banking and fiat currency. These are all linked. 
Uh, these are all closely linked. You build the fear, you build the fear, and then you set the scenario, and then you say, pause and say, but you don't have to worry, people, because government has the answer. And we've got up our sleeve this wonderful, great new reset, build back better. Uh, and so don't worry, we have got rough times ahead, but the government's going to make it better for you. And of course, um, sadly, history shows that that's often the case, does it not? You go through a terrible period, perhaps uh, you might argue like the French Revolution, which manifested itself in a another empire after Louis XIV, another empire run by Napoleon, uh, and that spread its tentacles all over Europe. Uh, and then we've seen it manifest itself, uh, you know, after that in all sorts of many ways. And it's, it, it's happening again, um, frightened people, and then government's got the answer, but it's never a libertarian government that follows these problems. It's always, it's always a more fascist or communist or totalitarian system that follows. Because what people don't understand is that it's government that got us into this problem to start with. So they don't seem to understand that. And what the route they go down, well, perhaps we didn't have enough government. And the government says, this isn't our fault, you know. If we'd had more government, if we'd had more digital currencies, if we'd had more passports, if we'd had more of everything, this wouldn't have happened. And we warned you. So the Great Reset is going to be more about taking more from you, more freedom and more money. Uh, it's all pretty obvious to people like you and me. Sadly, as we call here, you might be familiar with the phrase, the man on the Clapham omnibus, as we say in England, and you would probably in a North America certainly say Joe Sixpack, uh, is a little bit, uh, he, he's a little bit bewildered, but this is where the world is going and it's all interrelated. And you always end up with a war somewhere because a war brings out patriotism in people, which is not a bad thing in itself. Uh, so a war with Russia, a war with China, saber rattling, face to face, you know, stand all this kind of standoff business is uh, so they can say we've got to stand together because the big bogeyman is Russia. Or the big bogeyman is China. It's, it's as clear as anything to me. But then I'm an old man who's devoted most of his life to this kind of study. Uh, if you're a poor sod going around his business, an ordinary chap, a sparky, a bricky, a bartender, a cab driver. He's too busy trying to feed his family to understand what's being done to him. And and just on that uh, final geopolitical point, uh, I, I guess my question would be this whole U.S.-Russia, U.S.-China uh, conflict that we're seeing, how much of it is theater or and how much of it, um, you know, you see that there's a real threat that they could actually, I mean, we know that our leaders are, are psychopaths and, and they're crazy, but uh, I mean, do, do you think, what, what's the reality of, do uh, you think that they would actually take us to war with Russia and China? It's a difficult call to, to make on how it might pan out. But of course, as we know, uh, Eisenhower warned of this in his departure speech in uh, 1960. He said the military industrial congressional congress, got to remember the extra, the full quotation, uh, is going to be the tail that basically that wags the dog. Now, with a trillion dollars in the uh, military complex, industrial military complex, a trillion dollars a year, you have to find a bogeyman. Now, of course, the bogeyman was natural in the past. It was the Soviet Union, uh, which was an empire, a hostile empire, and not a very nice empire, politically hostile to the West. 
Don't mistake the Soviet Union with Russia. A lot of people make that uh, mistake. Russia has no designs whatsoever. Russia very, very rarely declares war on anybody at all. Um, they uh, have a habit of occupying and, and they like buffer zones. And when they had an empire, that's quite natural uh, in a European uh, land power. That's a natural phenomenon. Uh, but we've just had our chief of uh, chief of staff, our army chief of staff in this country saying, we must be prepared. We must be prepared and geared for war with Russia. It's difficult to believe that anybody who can get to the rank of full general could utter something which is so inane, so stupid, so lacking in knowledge of geopolitical strategy, unless, of course, he was trying to rebuild his budget, which is quite possible. So this is really all about budgets. And of course, in America, the budgets are largely unaudited. So everybody's got their hand in the till. Uh, and it's the same. Uh, it's the same in Great Britain. Uh, you know, with procurement, so on and so forth. Everybody's making a buck. Uh, and so these are some of the problems that we have. Now, will it turn into a shooting war? Well, that's a difficult one to answer. And from a military perspective, uh, and uh, I have a military background, uh, operationally at a junior level, but uh, certainly strategically at quite a senior level, I did the, the one-star course in, in London, Brigadier's course, international course. I was made an honorary brigadier. I was never paid more than major. <laughs> For a year, uh, they let me have that rank so I could attend that course. And it was lots of senior officers on it from all over the world. So I can tell you now that a shooting war, nobody ever wins a shooting war. That Nobody ever wins a shooting war. Because when the shooting stops... You have such a disaster area. You know, you have flattened Japan. You have a flattened Germany in the last war. Uh, and you have all sorts of other phenomenon, like a broken social system, uh, a broken empire, broken banking system, so on and so forth. So nobody ever wins that game. Uh, so, so in whose interest is a shooting war? And I would have thought nobody's, which means that we might not get one. But I have been to Washington on a, on a number of occasions. And I have met uh, people in the U.S. State Department, lunatic aso uh, associations like the Brookings Institute and various others. And, of course, I have a strong contact with uh, officers uh, in the American military, a number of whom I count as personal friends. But none of them can explain to me why the Americans have 200 overseas bases 250,000 overseas personnel and a budget of $1 trillion a year. The last response I had from a very dear friend, he said, I ah, said, Godfrey, there's a lot of bad people out there. <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm afraid you are they. <laughs> now, you are they. When was the last military intervention from the United States that went well? Nothing since Korea. There hasn't been a single successful military operation by the Americans or led by the Americans since Korea. But it seems to me the Americans learn nothing from it. And I'm not anti-American. I did say this in sorrow, in sorrow. They're my friends. It's a great nation with a great constitution, which somehow seems to have been abandoned. So it's terribly sad for me to have to say this. Uh, but I think perhaps we are seeing we could be even seeing the end of the United States because the states have nothing in common. I wrote on my website, I wrote on my blog, 
uh, has the United States ever really been united? And you could argue that it hasn't been since 1861. I mean, what the hell has California got in common with South Dakota? In its leadership, its people, its attitude to life? I mean, I live in Yorkshire. We don't even like them in Lancashire. They're 60 miles away. <laughs> we certainly don't like them in London. We think they're all idiots. So we've got a tiny little island. And we all think everybody else is an idiot. So when you go from South Dakota to, Cal to California, um, there isn't really a single bonding thing anymore. There used to be, but there isn't now. Uh, you know, the Constitution, the Stars and Stripes have been abandoned. Uh, and I think that's a tragedy because I think the American Constitution uh, was one of the greatest documents ever written. Yeah, I would agree. And we we do definitely see these trends. And on this podcast, we've been talking about it with, with many guests. So it's it's unfortunate uh, where we are, but uh, you know we we have to continue uh, the fight and have hope that things don't get uh, too bad uh, too soon. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts then on, on I call it the crown virus. Um, you know the medical tyranny that's getting absolutely out of hand uh, in Austria. The unvaccinated now are locked into their homes. Here in Mexico, states are proposing vaccine certificates, uh, at least one state, in order to move, you know, to, to enter the state, to move between states, and are talking about cutting off social benefits and welfare to the unvaxxed. Germany just proposed a law to bar non-GMO uh, Germans from travel to EU states. You've said in the video that you wake up every morning uh, and the things get madder and madder and worse and worse and that you absolutely cannot believe that these things are happening. Again, we all feel the same. Uh, could you kind of give us a, a bit more of your analysis of, of what do you think is behind this medical tyranny and you know where it might lead us if the current trend continues? Because to me, it really looks like we're in the 1930s and 40s again. I tend to agree with you. I think what we need to do first off is to have a look at it from a health perspective. Let's look at it from a health perspective. Now, I finished my career in the city. I was 40 years in the city of London. <clears throat> and my last job uh, was to be the chief executive officer of a life assurance company. So I am trained and experienced in the concept of mortality statistics. Now, we have a problem here, and we have a problem globally, where we are counting cases. And the cases are being counted on a very dubious testing system. So we don't even know if they're right. Now, if we were counting mortality statistics, and when I say mortality statistics, I want to look at the numbers of people who have actually died of this virus. Actually died. I don't mean granny or Aunt Edna, who is 95 years old and was already on a deathbed. Don't count those. They're irrelevant. None of those are relevant. I want to count the people under 75 who were hitherto fit and healthy, who have died with nothing else on the death certificate except COVID. And the numbers of those people is tiny. It's tiny. It's about the same in Great Britain as the number of deaths in road accidents. And we don't sort of lock everybody's car away. And it's the same globally. And you will have seen, I've been making this point for some time, that the, the state, the government has been saying, oh, 135,000 people have died from COVID. But even if you looked at the Office of National Statistics, which is a government body, you will find that the number of people who died, and I'm going back to February because they've taken the information down now, was three and a half thousand. 
It's the same in Italy when you actually expose the figures. And they've been revealed recently. 135,000 Italians supposedly died of COVID. Well, actually, now they worked out if you use the old death certificate protocols that that's 3,500 and most of them were very old. That begs the question, what is the danger uh, of this? If is it really a scamdemic or pandemic? I should pandemic, scamdemic. Well, of course it isn't. It isn't. Nobody watching this clip, uh, this is a one in 350,000 chance, will know anybody who is young and healthy who's died of COVID. All right. Nobody watching this clip will know that. Know that unless it's a real, real one off. Amazing statistic. Amazing chance. They might know somebody who has either died or been made very ill by the vaccination. I know two people who've died uh, and one who had a micro clot in the brain and lost. The, 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 I know. But, so that's me knowing three out of my limited acquaintances, let's say is. Let's say 300 people or something like that. So I know three, one in 100, who've either died or, or suffered badly. And yet the real truth of the matter on the other side of the same coin, died of COVID, is one in 350,000. That has to be telling us something, doesn't it? And then you have another look. Let's look at that. So we know we don't have a health crisis. And we had the prime minister last week tell the country on TV that the vaccine will not prevent transmission or contraction of the virus. He's now on TV this week telling us we've got, got to get the jab or we'll have to lock down for Christmas. With no sense of irony and worse, no cross-examined by ma mainstream media. You think the first question would be from the floor, from the venerated BBC, would you not, would be, just a minute, if it doesn't stop you catching it or transmitting it, why on earth would we bother having it? Never mind a booster. Nobody asks that question. Nobody in the, the mainstream media is asking why. And it's a natural question. So we've lost our protection. It's the same in the main in America. And it's the same in, in the main in Europe. The protection in a free liberty uh, or liberal society and industrial Western democracy is a free press. The press are completely stifled or part of the conspiracy. And I don't mind using the word conspiracy. People say, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. No, I'm not. I'm not a theorist. <laughs> I'm just looking at what's actually happened. It's not a theory. <laughs> you know, I'm not Galileo having a chance to have a crack at the Catholic Church. They're admitting it. They're saying this. You can't move about. You'll be locked down. Your life will be made difficult if you don't have the jab. In Austria, of all places. Austria? They're thinking of camps. Does that not reminding everybody of the 19, late 1930s in Austria? Are they going to be putting people into camps on cattle trucks? What, you know, is nobody frightened? Is nobody concerned? They don't seem to be. They don't seem to be. They seem to be going with it. So we don't have a pandemic. It's a, the reaction is a hoax. It is a nasty bug if you get it. It's a nasty bug if you've got it. I've had some friends who've got it and they were very poorly for a week or two weeks. There's no question about it. It's nasty. And let's all understand that it's a nasty bug. But it's not a threat to humankind and certainly not worthy of the reaction that we're getting to it globally. So that's number one. Coronavirus, the re response to coronavirus is a hoax.
And the sooner mainstream media across the world, the so-called free media, flag it up as the emperor has no clothes, this isn't going to change. Or start counting mortality statistics and not cases. I mean, you might as well count athlete's foot or dandruff, mightn't you? What is the point of counting cases? If you want to, if you want to be looking at the uh, the problem of murder or rape, you want to look at the number of convictions, not the number of arrests without conviction, because the number of arrests isn't telling you whether we're dealing with a problem or not, is it? It's not telling you anything. You need to deal with the number of convictions. And at the moment, we also abandoned in this country, and I think it's the same in North America, the protocols that we used to have. That's two signatures on the death certificate and an autopsy if you're not sure. We're not having that now. So you can just wing it. I live in a small county, uh, a sub-county of East Yorkshire. We have six, a population of 60,000. And the local top doctor here is a personal friend. And I said, how many people have died in the last 18 months who were hitherto healthy? And the answer was none. None. So where's BBC? Why don't they interview this guy? Where are all these deaths? They're not. They're not, not happening. Yeah. So sooner or later, sooner or later, people, I think, are going to wise up. But I think by then it'll be too late. Yeah, about the media. We saw recently uh, in New Zealand, um, someone asked the prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, the, the question that they, you were saying that they should have asked uh, Bojo. And she just shut down the press conference. She just ended it like that's insane and uh what, what you're talking about the, the the i have right behind me here if people can see i actually purchased uh nazi achnen pass the the health pass that the nazis uh created like health passport and that's what they're bringing back now with these um medical passports and and i think that coincides with with what i was going to ask you next with the, with the climate because now they're wanting they're talking about these personal carbon uh, allowances that we're going to have that are going to be part of some part of this i guess health passport or we're going to have some kind of uh digital passport which is going to be used for covid and for our carbon uh allowance and you know you you on your website you call it climate bollocks uh as you so eloquently put it um and all we hear from the un and their ngos today is the pandemic and climate you know those that's their one two punch which uh from my perspective serves as pretext for global domination you know they call it they they say themselves global government world government and they're now pushing net zero which you've been talking about and as i said these unbelievable personal carbon allowances which they're going to limit they want to take away our meats no more meats they want to take away our private uh vehicles and so uh, how, what would be your comment on the climate uh, agenda and these you know digital passports well certainly this is all and has been about the beginning for digital passports I said that on day one, that this is simply the path where people think that they're having a passport for their own good. Now, and a lot of them do. The majority probably do. And I made this point when I'm speaking at universities to undergraduates. In the old days, the king, the medieval kings would come and steal your cattle, steal your lady, Uh, steal your gold, steal everything from you because he was the king. And he was an honest thief. He would say, I'm taking this because I can. I've got a sword. I've got men behind me. And I'm a, you know, I'm a psycho sociopath. I admit it. I'm the king. So anyway, but pretty straightforward. 
you know, you've got you've got to warm to the guy because he's honest. Now we have government saying taking our money, restricting our freedoms is for our own benefit. They're saying it's for your benefit. And they get together from all over the world as they fly in their private jets to say we've got to do something about the little people producing carbon dioxide with no sense of irony. The fact that they've flown there in their private jets uh, and their chauffeur driven limousines uh, whatsoever. Uh, oh, the sea's rising, and they've all got—they've uh, all got um, wonderful houses on the beach. There isn't a single multi-multi-multi-millionaire billionaire who doesn't have a beachfront house. No one. So they don't believe it themselves. Uh, so the whole thing is absolutely nonsense. But the trouble is, the problem that we're having in the media, uh, even those people who are pushing back a little bit about it, are saying, ah, well, yeah, but net zero is going to be too expensive. The Chinese aren't playing the game. The Russians aren't playing the game. We can't afford it or make energy too expensive. But what they're doing, they're starting the argument in chapter two. They need to go to chapter one. And the question they need to say is, Man-made carbon dioxide going to boil the planet. That's the question we need. It's chapter one. Don't come in at chapter two. So I want somebody, and I was on the Environmental Committee of the European Union Parliament for five years, and nobody could explain this to me. Um, can you explain the Minoan warm period, the Roman warm period, the medieval warm period, the 18th century mini ice age, so on and so forth? where nobody was producing much in the way of carbon dioxide except breathing it out. So we've seen these fluctuations uh, in, in climate time and time again. Then you have a look at how much carbon dioxide is actually in the atmosphere, which I think off the top of my head is 0.04% or something of that nature of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Then you have to have a look at how much of that is produced is man-made, which I think is around about 3%. Then you have a little look at what Great Britain produces, which I think is something like one and a tiny bit percent. So are we going to close down the British economy for something which, A, is not proven, the hypothesis is not proven, and I've had to listen to this for 20 years, that the world is going to work. I've listened to this for 20 years. I keep looking out of the window wondering when it's going to happen, and it doesn't happen. Nobody's asking these questions. And if you look at the, the press of the 1970s, the Guardian over here is the favoured um, newspaper of choice for the left wing. The headline ran, I think it was 1974, we are going into a mini ice age. That was 1974. There has to be a crisis. There has to always be a crisis. Uh, and it just goes following on and on and on. And the sad thing is we have politicians and probably now a whole generation, I would say this, wouldn't I, as an old man, a generation, if not two generations, who have not had the benefit of a traditional education. They've got a college degree, but I don't mean that. <laughs> They've got something on the wall in a frame in the lavatory. Yeah, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a traditional education. And the Australian uh, question guy, uh, I, I saw it a couple of days, he asked the junior minister uh, in the government who was advocating all this economic change for the so-called climate crisis. And he asked her how much carbon dioxide there was in the atmosphere and what was Australia's contribution to it. And she didn't know. She didn't know. 
because she hadn't had the benefit of traditional education. She couldn't bother to do any homework before she came on on TV. She was an incredibly stupid woman. And I used to sit around committees in the European Parliament who were adjudicating on regulation for investment trusts, hedge funds, and all the rest of it. They were Danish housewives, Bulgarian socialists, all sorts of people. I spent half the time in the committee explaining what they were about to legislate on. These people's ignorance is stunning. It's absolutely mind-bending how ignorant and stupid these people are, but they have the levers of power. And they go on having the levers of power because in North America and Great Britain, you vote red or you vote blue. So I live in a part of the world which is a rural community, uh, sparsely populated, rather charming. If you put a blue rosette here on a dog turd, people would vote for it. Across the river, if you put a red one on a dog turd across the river, they'd vote for it there because that's a red county. We will never break out of this until we change the system And if you want to be elected to Parliament or Congress in North America, you're not allowed to wear a badge. You're not allowed to. What you've got to do is you've got to say, I'm Godfrey Bloom and I believe in the following things. Vote for me. No badges, just my name. And I'll stand on the stump and and have a go and I'll hand out my leaflets with what I believe in. And then we would get a Congress or a Parliament which actually reflects what people believe. I have never been in a democracy ever, and I've worked in France, I've worked in Belgium, uh, and, 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 and I know America reasonably well, United States reasonably well. I haven't ever met anybody who thought the government was doing a good job or the government was doing what they wanted. No one, no one, it's not ever. What they do is they say, well, he's not as bad as the other guy. The other guy would have been a disaster. So we had now, of course, America's ended up with Biden. Who should be in a leafy home in the suburbs to see out his twilight years dribbling down his cardigan. He's in charge of one of the most powerful countries on the face of the planet. It's democracy for you. Don't work. Yeah, people are tending to, to vote for the least worst, uh, even here in Mexico. And, and the Australian you mentioned may have been uh, the senator I interviewed uh, uh, one or two weeks ago, Senator Malcolm Roberts, who's one of the few uh, actually bringing these questions up uh, in the Australian uh, parliament. And, you know, people can check the archives. I, I've previously interviewed Lord Christopher Monckton, as well as Rupert Darwall, who talks about the climate industrial uh, complex. And I would agree with you about the college education. I worked in university and, and, and uh, secondary education, and I, I taught on these subjects. And when I bring up the mid- medieval warm period, everyone looks at you like you're crazy. And the only thing they can muster is conspiracy theorists. And I'm like, I'm looking at the yeah. actual science and they, they cannot, they just give you ad hominem attack. They cannot answer the real uh, question. It, it's, it's insane. And you mentioned working in the European Parliament, and I had a question just about your experience there uh, in the EU. You know, while I was doing my graduate studies in Geneva, Switzerland, I was a staff uh, assistant at the EU and UN. And, you know, many of the people I came across were just as you described, but also full of themselves, pretentious, narcissists, uh, opportunists. And, you know, myself being a Euro skeptic and anti globalist, uh, I was within the lion's den, right? And 
I couldn't stand it. I, I abhorred it. And when I finished my studies, I quickly packed up in search of uh, greener pastures. But people can find videos of you calling out the EU technocrats to their faces, calling them undemocratic fascists uh, and the like. And I find it takes a great deal of metal to do what you did for so many years. And you know, what drove you and how were you able to make such a, a bold uh, and courageous stand? Well, that's kind of you to say so, but I don't really view it that way. I came into politics very late in life. Um, I've been an army officer and I've been a city businessman. I didn't come into politics until I was in my 50s. Uh, I'm just a guy from the rugby club who got elected because we had a different system for the European Union where people could vote for the guy they wanted. And I got hundreds of thousands of votes because they didn't have to vote red or blue in that election. Uh, but it's, so it was quite easy for me to call out these scoundrels, crooks, sociopaths and ne'er-do-wells. It was quite easy. It wasn't difficult. It would have been difficult for me, a guy like me, to remain silent. Remaining silent, as my wife will tell you, is my problem. I can't remain silent. Uh, and of course, the funny thing is, uh, there's a particular speech uh, that really got millions of views, uh, which was, uh, on tax. It was on tax. And of course, it's all about more and more taxing the ordinary man. Tax, tax, tax. But of course, what is fascinating is that you will know that the bureaucrats and the politicians in the European Parliament don't pay tax. They have what is called a composite tax, which is something like 10% over $200,000 a year. I mean, euros a year. So into all intents and purposes, they don't pay income tax at all. They have a non-contributive pension scheme, which is to die for. You know, it's fantastic. It's index linked. It's marvelous. They don't put a penny into that. So they're doing very, very nicely. And of course, if you look at these people, and you will have seen this as well, these people are totally unrepresented of any country that they stand for. And they're odd people. You would never see a picture, and I can't speak for other European countries because I don't know, but you won't find a picture of a British politician ever in a team sport game. You won't find one picture of them playing rugby at college. They don't do team. They're loners. There's, they're oddballs. And you've only really got to look at them, haven't you? And I can't speak so much about uh, other countries because I don't have the depth of experience and depth of experience as I do in this country. But if you look at people that we didn't even elect, like Sir Patrick Vallance, the coronavirus guru, and Chris Whitty. Chris Whitty is virtually running these things, running all this kind of stuff. And everybody's saying, well, listen to the science. You're dealing with a man who, A, looks like a homicidal poached egg, he was obviously bullied at school. He obviously couldn't get the girls and was never selected for the football team. You're dealing with a guy who is coming to this with a lot of baggage, a lot of baggage. And suddenly now he's a powerful man. He's a powerful man now for the first time in his rather miserable life. And they're all the same. There's something wrong with them. And they didn't go in. We haven't had prime ministers who want to be prime minister to do something. We wanted, they just wanted to be prime minister. They just wanted to be a prime minister. Previous guy, Theresa May, uh, David Cameron, 
Uh, these people wanted to be prime minister, but not to do anything. I would like to be prime minister so I could do something. I'd slash government spending. I'd slash tax. I'd slash regulation. You know, that's what I would do. I'd, I'd, I'd get rid of 50% at least of people working in the public sector. I want to do something. They don't want to do anything. They don't want to do anything. They just like their chauffeur-driven limousine and their private jet uh, and all the bits and the trappings that come with it. But these people wouldn't last. If I was a top political BBC interviewer, I could have them in tears in under two minutes. But, of course, I'm not allowed on. <laughs> Well, I, I think you described them well, and that, that was certainly my experience. Total uh, oddballs and, and yeah, not the kind of people we, we want or, or, or need in power. And speaking of um, taxes and the economy, uh, I believe you are an uh, Austrian economist. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Austrian school. I've got my uh, Mises mug here. And just last week, Lou Rockwell, the founder of the Mises Institute, had posted two of my podcast interviews on his site. And so... Our, our governments are, are bankrupt. It seems the debt bubble they uh, are in is unlike anything in history. We're experiencing what some call superinflation, a true rate of inflation, perhaps above 10%, but not quite hyperinflation yet. Um, how would you assess the state of the current uh, economy? And you know, when do we finally run out of road and start seeing fireworks and, and the crack up uh, boom? Well, I know Lou Rockwell quite well. I had the great pleasure of uh, dining with him when I was in uh, uh, Alabama a few years ago and giving a talk to their undergraduates there. Um, I'm obviously a member of the Institute, Mises Institute, which is interesting. I try and promote it here in universities in England. They simply have never heard. I've spoken to third year undergraduates at some of the best universities, Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, uh, Exeter, uh, London School of Economics, slightly less so with the London School of Economics. You talk about Mises or Menga or the crack-up boom or hyperinflation, they simply stare. They don't know what you're talking about. It's Keynesianism, and that's it. Finito. And if you speak to one of the faculty, and this has been said to me at Newcastle University, they say, oh, the debate's over. There's no further debate now. Uh, and, and they tell the undergraduates, if you wanted to study uh, Austrian school economics, for example, and the Austrian school uh, leading guys, uh, historical guys and Murray Rothbard and so on and so forth, you should have applied to do a philosophy course. Uh, well, I suppose <laughs> not unreasonable, but it's a really disappointing when your faculty members at the big universities have no more idea than their undergraduates. And of course, there was a wonderful clip. I only just saw it today in the time of the Jimmy Carter administration. I recognized him. He's quite a well-known actor. I think he was in um, Ghostbusters. He, I can't remember his name, but he was doing a sketch <clears throat> on inflation under the Jimmy Carter. He had lots of air. He was very, he was very young man when he did this. And it was it tells you all you need to know about inflation. You know, inflation is going to be great. Who doesn't want a five thousand dollar suit? Who doesn't want to earn ten thousand dollars a week? You know, because that's what inflation does. Isn't it marvelous? And then he does an impersonation of Jimmy Carter phoning up the Fed saying, hey, I need some more. Print off more of those twenty dollar bills. Print off more of those hundred dollar bills. And everybody's laughing. It's terribly funny. And this was going on with Jimmy Carter. We're seeing that now. 
that anybody who suggests, oh, well, it will somehow trail off at 10% or 8% and come back down again while you're still printing money is insane. Uh, I think it's too late. I don't know what your viewers would suggest or Lou Rockwell would suggest. Um, I think it's too late. I think it's gone too far. Uh, I think we're on the edge of the crack up boom, which I was explaining only funnily enough to my wife this morning, who wants to be part of it. She's desperate to be part of the crack up boom. She wants to get out there and shop for the nation. Uh, so <laughs> this has gone too far. It's gone too far in my view. Uh, I don't think we can pull back. The debt's under four. The debt's under four. We're dealing with numbers now, of course, beyond human imagination. That just the national debt here in uh, Great Britain is three trillion. He hides it, cheats and lies and leaves stuff off balance sheet like public sector pensions where uh, is a liability. If you did that uh, as UK PLC, you'd go to prison. It's straight fraud. But our chancellor and his predecessors have done it for years and years. So they're presenting the accounts um, to the nation in a fraudulent manner. And of course, another thing that your average young uh, undergraduate in North America won't know uh, is that since the Nixon window closed the gold window, the purchasing power of the 1971 United States dollar has gone down to something like six cents. The pound here is no better, of course. And, and uh, uh, it's happened to international countries. Even the Swiss franc uh, has, has down to 20% of its 1971 value. So we know, don't we, uh, we know for a fact that the nations are going to have to default. Everybody, it's, everybody's going to default. And the new words that we hear, build back better, Reset is simply code for we're wiping off all the debt, everything, and we're going to invent a new currency. And it's going to be just like the old one, only we're going to call it digital. But we've got digital now. You go into a bank and borrow 20000 for a car, they type it into a machine. It's not real money. <laughs> it's not real money. Um, but, of course, the Chancellor of the Exchequer here uh, doesn't understand what money is or how it works. Um, in fact, my new books, my, my book's coming out again uh, soon. I've got the second edition coming out. Uh, and they've just sent me the proof today. It arrived this very morning, The Magic of Banking. And what I've tried, excuse me, plugging my book. I'm not trying to do it to make a buck, believe me. I'm just trying to get the truth out there. I don't need to make Buck. I'm not making anything on it anyway. It's too cheap. Um, what I'm trying to do is explain to the layman that most people know they're being cheated by politicians and bankers. All right. They know that. What they don't know is how it's being done because they're butchers, bakers, cab drivers, surgeons, barristers. They, they're not trained in this field any more than I know anything about computers or, or pop music. I don't know anything about it. So uh, if I want to know about it, I have to listen to an expert. And my attention span is short. Um, so I've written a little a memoir. Uh, the first one you could read in 40 minutes. This one is a bit bigger. It would take an hour and 15 minutes to read, probably, or an hour and 20 minutes. But it's full of graphs, and it explains things to people. So GDP, you look at your 
you look at your person giving you the news and GDP grew uh, last quarter by 0.02% and all this kind of thing. Meaningless figure. GDP is just a measure of activity, not a measure of wealth. It's not a measure of profit. It's not a measure of anything. It's an invention of government. Inflation is what the government says it is. And if something's inflating too hard or too fast, they take it out of the basket. So they can tell us it's only 3%. There isn't a British or American citizen who doesn't know that it's 10%. Because they live in the community and they have to buy stuff. Look at your Wi-Fi. It's doubled. In two years, the cost of Wi-Fi uh, in where I live has doubled. Petrol's gone up. Diesel's gone up. <clears throat> the guy coming around to mend the, the boiler has gone up. Everything is has gone up. We know that. And everybody, the old American housewife knows that. And so the idea of this book is to explain how they cheat you and how they lie and the deceit, hence the title Magic of Banking, uh, and how it can only end in disaster. And the great thing about the book is you once you've finished it, you can hang yourself. Well, when the book comes out, I'll be sure to uh, share the news and promote it on my um, networks. And I think that the Ghostbuster that you were referring to, the comedian, was Dan Aykroyd, uh, I Dan, believe. It was Dan. Yes, it was. I, it wouldn't come to me because I'm an old geezer now and I can't remember things. Dan Aykroyd. And I thought it was brilliant. And it should be shown in every every classroom in Britain and America. And, and, and I guess just the final question, then, as you're describing what's going on, what advice would you have for listeners who are scattered throughout the globe uh, in terms of weathering the storms uh, ahead of us, you know, of tyranny and uh, economic collapse? What are just some key principles or themes? Well, I think the great, all I can offer, don't have any money in the bank. Don't have any money at all where the state can get at it because you're more likely to be robbed by the government than anybody else. Don't worry about particularly about getting mugged or burgled. That's a really that's not really highly likely. The state stealing your money is the greatest threat to you and your savings. I would suggest gold or silver, precious metal, in a safe deposit box, which isn't part of a banking system. Not part. So it's secure. You'll have to pay a few hundred dollars a year for it. And it, but it's secure, state-of-the-art security, uh, and it's not part of a bank because the government own banks, to all intents and purposes, government, governments own banks, central banks own banks, and, and government own central banks. So then, uh, and this gets me into trouble sometimes, um, something to defend you and your family with in your home. Because when it breaks down, it's going to get ugly. And which, of course, is why there's a big push in America to stop people having arms. Uh, it isn't for any other reason that the last thing they want when they come to steal your money or the state suddenly uh, want to take over control is the citizens being able to defend themselves. That's the very last thing they want, uh, and which is why in this country it's almost impossible to own a firearm at all. Um, you can, but I mean, it, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. Um, so it's gold and pass the ammunition. Yeah, I, I, I pretty much have the same view as well. And unfortunately, here in Mexico, you can't have firearms. But again, it's just like in, in, in Britain, it's it's um, difficult to get the license and the caliber of, of gun that they give you 
is is low. Um, I guess one one final question though on the censorship. You know, my YouTube is on the chopping block, but it seems my listenership is wising up, and many are migrating to the alternative platforms. And I see you are also on Odyssey. How are you? How do you see the current censorship, and how are you adapting to the deplatforming? My technical guy Patrick does all this because he's an expert on this. And we are already making sure that everything I do is on an uncensored channel somewhere. And he understands where that is. YouTube, um, I mean, I've been taken down a number of times. I mean, this clip here, I would normally use on my own website. But this won't go on website because it'll just be it will just get striked off. You know. it, it, it'll be heavily censored. Oh, I can't say this. Or I can't say that. Heaven forfend that I suggest this vaccine doesn't work. Oh, oh, don't suggest that you're right off, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's the whole beauty. I was such a big supporter of social media. I came to it lately because I'm an old geezer and didn't understand it. I thought it's a wonderful thing where we could all communicate without censorship. And now, of course, social media is heavily censored. As anything else. And of course, then you get self-censorship. If I'm doing a YouTube or a Facebook, I sit down and I never make notes when I speak to camera, but I avoid an obvious excuse for fact checkers who are paid by Bill Gates or somebody like Bill Gates to be able to print over the top, this is misinformation, which I've actually had using British government statistics. This is or out of context, you know, uh, this kind of thing. So I'm hoping that these new channels do well. I gather from Patrick, my man, that they're not as easy to use. He has to fiddle about a bit to get them up there and stuff like that. And they take a bit of time. But let's hope that uh, they they rescue us because this is the only source of uncensored information now is social media it simply isn't anywhere else and i wrote an article on my website uh oh, last year uh, from uh, another good blog called going postal which is an extremely good blog carries lots of articles only articles um the great failure of mainstream media and you know full of examples and whys and hows and all the rest of it but of course most people think their research uh, on the coronavirus, they watch daytime TV and they watch a doctor who's paid by BBC or paid by Bill Gates saying why we've got to get the vaccine. While they're doing that, they're having their toast. They're having their morning coffee and they half catch it. That Nobody is going, just a minute, just a minute. I think I'm going to do this myself. I'd like to find out myself what's going on. I'm going to dig down a bit. I think probably one person in 20 bothers to do that or one person in 100 maybe. But more people will do it <clears throat> when more people have friends and members of their family really suffering and ill by having something that's made them so. Uh, and that I think people will begin to push back. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. But I think perhaps it could happen. Even money. 
Yeah, and and, and well, th these systems are are improving. So uh, so far, it's looking good. They're get, they're getting easier to use, and a, a few of my recent clips are, are are getting just on Odyssey alone, which is the platform you're talking about. Now, now twenty thousand views uh, just there alone. So for some individual podcasts, it will certainly go on there. It's my 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 uh, colleague Patrick will be putting them up uh, for people to see. And I've got to do a clip on why I'm not. A, I, I'm doing something which is uh, maybe I had a conversation, uh, you know, like we had today. It's not going on YouTube because it would be censored, but you will find it. Now, yeah. I'm, I'm exposing YouTube. I'm yeah. going to be saying, no, I can't put what I'm doing uh, on YouTube. I can't do it. They'll that, take it down. All right? what, that, so if you want it, and Twitter's the same. Interesting on Twitter. They take down followers every week. Do you know last week was an absolute classic because they don't even try and have it. I put on 104 new followers on Twitter last week. They took off 104. They don't even try and make it look like it. It's a 104 on and 104 off. No, the, the, the mask has, has come off. And uh, even what you said about using government data um i mean i i couldn't believe it when I, when i did the interview with the australian senator we talked about climate and, and corona and he uses australian government data and that that interview was taken down in less than an hour and i got just the day before my first 90 day strike had expired and yeah i got a new 90 day um first strike with the interview I did with the Australian senator. So I'm doing the same thing you are, just posting, you know, short clip on YouTube and saying, go elsewhere to watch it. And uh, it seems to be working. Do you have any final thought to leave us with? Uh, no, I just think that it's been a very helpful conversation, um, you know, with us. And, uh, and, and if, but at the end of the day, just leaving one message, if I may, with anybody who's, you know, watching your followers and my followers, the only way we can end this is by the individuals taking action. And I think we started to see that, did we not, last week in Melbourne, Victoria, in Australia. We are beginning to see it. You have to go on the streets in very big numbers because if you don't have big numbers, the police will just pick you off one by one and beat you up. I'd be interested to know what the new recruitment program is for police, both in Australia and here. Is it? Do you have to have, do you need to be a psychopath who then has to have a lobotomy. Is that, is that how it works? Then they get the uniform. And they're the same sort of people, aren't they? Probably didn't do very well at school. They've got the helmet. They've got the truncheon. They've got the taser guns. They're starting to feel pretty important. You take all that away. Take all that. I'm too old now, but I used to box in the army. Take that away. You wouldn't last five minutes with me, son. Yeah, that's unbelievable. That that's the thing that I, I I'm most uh, amazed with the, the the people who are willing to enforce this. And you know, we've learned from history. Like you know, we ask ourselves, how did the Germans go along with the Nazi regime and and in other totalitarian countries as well? And we're witnessing the same thing uh, occurring now. The website is godfreybloom.uk, and people can find you on all the big tech platforms, including the alternatives like uh, Odyssey. Uh, and you have the new book uh, coming out. Uh, thank you, Godfrey, for mercilessly speaking truth to power. And thanks for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Well, thank you for inviting me. 
I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.